Howdy, all of life. Good morning. Hey, we, uh, we have been in Matthew's gospel for the last little while in the Sermon on the Mount. And the way the Sermon on the Mount, it starts in Matthew chapter 5 and it moves on through chapter 6 and also chapter 7. The way that it begins is with this series of blessings. There are eight of them where Jesus says, blessed are you, or blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What he is doing is he's opening up the the Sermon on the Mount is he is calling forward distinct character traits of his own people. He's saying, fortunate are you, happy are you when these things are present in your life because they are present in your life if you are my people. And so what Jesus is doing in the Beatitudes and in this series of blessings is he's describing the qualities and he's describing the value system of his kingdom people. So whenever a person encounters the church anywhere, whether it's this community of God's people at all of life or whether it's across our city or region or world, whenever somebody encounters the church, ideally, this is not for sure always the case, but ideally a person should distinctly feel each of the qualities that Jesus calls out in these eight blessings brought to life in the culture of the church community that they are experiencing. That's God's will for his people, for his churches, to display the qualities of the Beatitudes. But in this morning, now we're transitioning out of the Beatitudes and we're transitioning into um, this section where based out of the character of his people, he now begins to speak about the conduct. What is our way of life supposed to look like now? And so Go with me in your Bibles or the black Bibles around the room, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. It's just a handful of chapters. I don't know the page number in the black Bibles off uh, the top of my mind, but if somebody wants to call it out, you could help people get there quickly if you're already there. 760, page 760 in the black Bibles. Jesus is using metaphor here, and what he says is, is really uh, unusual, uh, I think. Um, it's shocking in some ways, surprising in some significant ways. He says, you're the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored or its taste be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And then he moves to another metaphor. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do a people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but rather on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, now he's making the connection here. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. This is God's word. Let's consider the context again of where this sermon is coming from and what's happening. In Matthew chapter five, if you go to the very beginning, Matthew chapter five, verse one, it says these great crowds were following, starting to follow Jesus. He was gaining a lot of attention and a lot of fame. And so these crowds are coming out from the cities into the wilderness and he goes up on a mountain and the text says that he sits down. That's a sign and a posture of authority. Rabbis would sit and teach. 
His disciples, the text tells us that his disciples came to him. So they came close to him as disciples would with a rabbi in that culture. And then the crowds would begin to press in to hear what he was saying. He didn't have amplification or a face mic like we do today. So he's speaking and the crowds are kind of pressing in. No social distancing here. From this place of blessing that he begins with in the Beatitudes, he begins to spell out where this blessedness or blessedness will lead and what it is supposed to, by his strength and people giving over our will to God, what it's supposed to produce in his people. So he starts with character. That's what the blessings are all about. They're character traits and qualities and the value system of his kingdom. And now he's moving to the conduct of godly character. Who we are produces how we live. Who we are inside produces a way of life. Here's the big idea this morning. Here's where we're going. Here's what I'm gonna really just press in. Jesus has gathered and scattered people. So here's what I mean by gathered and scattered. Gathered anytime we're in a congregation like this or anytime we're gathered up in community groups in the homes or clusters of Christians together. Gathered people of God, but also the scattered people of God out into our neighborhoods, our, our homes, our workplaces, our friend groups. The, when Jesus has gathered and scattered people are to be by his design, non-ignorable. To say it another way, we're not meant to blend. We are to have a distinct, preserving, flavor-giving, and illuminating influence on the world around us. That's the big idea this morning. Jesus has gathered and scattered people are to be non-ignorable. So he starts by saying, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness, how shall its taste be restored? It's no longer good at that point for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. There are several surprises in this passage. There's several surprises in the next passage where he says, you are the light of the world too. The thing that I think um, we can gloss over, but that I begin, as I began to just contemplate this, it really, as it settled in on me, it surprised me. The first surprise was that he's saying, you. I am the salt of the earth as his disciple. You are the salt of the earth. One of the surprises in this passage is that God means to use people like me and people like you and people like us. Another surprise in this passage to me is that he says, you're the salt of the earth. He doesn't begin by saying you're the salt to this original audience. You're the salt of Palestine or you're the salt of Galilee or you're the salt of Jerusalem or Israel. But actually he says, you are the salt of the earth, the entire known world, the globe. Now, who's he speaking to? He's speaking to everyday blue collar disciples who are gathered at his feet um, very diverse in their background and their political affiliations and all of that. They're a, a totally diverse band of 12 disciples. But also he's speaking to these crowds. The crowds are um, largely, uh, dominantly the ordinary ones. They're not the academics. They're not the elites. They're not the power brokers in society. He's essentially saying, you blessed by God ones have a distinct, preserving, illuminating effect across the scope of my earth. That's what I'm calling you to. That's what I'm pointing you to. And that's what I'm empowering you for. He's the master here of metaphor. 
If you're not familiar with metaphor, what metaphors do is they compare the known things that we know about to the unknown and they make the unknown more clear. Or they compare the abstract to the concrete. Metaphors essentially paint mental pictures with an economy of words. So in very few words, you just get a mental picture and you come into a place of understanding. You are the salt of the earth. He's comparing salt and food to people and the earth. That's what's happening here. Now, salt was primarily useful in, and of value in Jesus's time, actually in all of history, uh, for two reasons. Number one, it's useful for preservation of food, but it's also useful to bring out the flavor of food. Now, uh, I have not understood how salt is used as a preservative, except for the fact that I know that it is used as a preservative. I haven't known anything about the history of salt at all until this last week, or the, 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 just like the chemical reactions and the science of salt. I am amazed at this very simple, simple mineral compound. Very amazed. This, the salt, um, as, I'm, as I begin to like do a deep dive on the science of salt, it's weird, I know, uh, I began to see the genius and the simplicity of Jesus's teaching and his mind and his intellect and his knowledge. He's God, he's created it. And now he's teaching his people and it amazes me. His accuracy here amazes me. So first, what Jesus is doing is by using salt and also by using light is he's using concrete ideas in ways that everyone who has ears to hear can hear. He's using everyday items that are familiar with the world around him to, to use as teaching props or teaching tools. What this means is that Jesus is teaching, it's accessible. Jesus' teaching is accessible. So for those in the room who struggle to understand your Bible, who struggle to listen to it, who struggle to engage with it, who struggle to make sense of the big story of the Bible, please, please, please do not quit continue to engage with God's word as you listen to it through the dwell app that we provide for you at no cost, or you can read the scriptures and the text or on your phone, continue to engage with God's word. It will produce wisdom in you and you will come to understanding, but it's complex. It's an ancient book written over 1500 years in three languages over the span of three continents by 40 authors. It's complex. It's a collection of writings. So here's what I wanna ask. Um, spend time in the whole of the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament. Spend time in the writings of the scriptures and make your home in the gospels. Make the gospels a bit of home base for yourself. You're just continually coming back to the New Testament gospels, the stories, the four unique stories written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John about Jesus's life. Because where we begin to understand who Jesus is, it makes sense and begins to unlock the entire storyline of the Bible. The entire Bible, according to Jesus in Luke chapter 24, is about him. It culminates in him. It points to him. The Levitical and sacrificial system, atonement, all of that spoken of that's hard for us to understand. The temple, the people of God called out among peoples, it all explains in some way and makes clear the person and the work of Jesus. 
So as we make our home in the gospels, but we, but we, but we explore the rest of the Bible and seek to know it and put together the storyline, um, consider this, uh, this admonition, this encouragement from a psalmist in your Old Testament, Psalm 119, 130. Every time you interact with the Bible, this is what's happening. Thoughtfully and prayerfully and diligently, the unfolding of your words gives light. It, imp- it imparts understanding to the simple. That's what's happening when we engage the ancient, timeless, authoritative, sufficient, clear word of God. It's making us understand. It's making us wise. So Jesus says here, you're the salt of the earth. Uh, As I'm doing a deep dive on salt and on food preservation and all of that, I I began to ask the question, when were refrigerators invented? I came to find out that domestic, like in the home fridges only came into existence in 1913. So we have had uh, cooling units in our homes to to preserve our food for 108 years. And for all of the thousand years, the thousands of years of human history, salt has primarily been used as a preservative for food. People would mine it in these giant rock deposits and they'd break off chunks of it and then grind it down into granules or they'd take seawater or salt springs and evaporate them. And when that water is evaporated, what you have left is literally sea salt that we can put on our food, season our food, and preserve our food. Um, Salt works in two ways as a preservative. Number one, it creates a barrier to oxygen getting into, let's picture a piece of meat, like a brisket or a prime rib or or a a tri-tip or something like that. As you put salt on the outside, it, it it functions a bit of a crust. It dries out the outer layer and that forms a barrier to oxygen. But also what salt does is it absorbs moisture. And there are two enemies to our food um, primarily, which are oxygen and moisture. Those are those, anytime there's oxygen and moisture with organic matter, what's gonna happen is bacteria, bacteria rot, and infection is going to develop in those food sources, right? One thing I did not understand about salt is how it also works its way all the way through the meat. So if you put salt on the outside through a principle called diffusion, what salt is going to do slowly over time, it's gonna dissolve and it's gonna penetrate through this meat and it's going, to see, it's going to literally seek chemical balance within the flesh, which creates an even distribution all throughout the meat. It's a a little bit like water in a sponge, how how water will just fill a sponge evenly. Salt will do the same thing to meat. And what it does is it brings flavor and it brings preservation to our food. So here's the point that I think Jesus is trying to make in all of that. Jesus has scattered his people across his earth for the purpose of preservation. He means for us in more ways than can be quantified that we would act as a barrier against the corruption of humanity. Think about that for a moment. The people of God are preservatives within the earth, warding off evil, holding back darkness, fighting for justice, extending mercy, providing food and nourishment for those who are hungry. 
being proponents of education, proponents of rule of law, advocates for peace. He means for us to be in the world as salt, as preservative. And not only that, but to also bring out the flavor of humanity because salt functions as a flavor amplifier. What it does is it draws out the inherent flavors in the food that we can't necessarily biologically taste. And it makes those subtle flavors that are there in the food distinct to us. That's one of the ways that salt works is a flavor enhancer. So picture you're adding salt to bread or you're adding salt to pasta. What you're, you're feeling the salt a bit on your tongue, but you're not actually tasting the salt when it's properly seasoned. You're actually tasting more of the food. It also blocks or brings out sweetness and it blocks bitterness. It's an amazing substance. And Jesus is using this as a teaching tool. Our bodies, we need salt. We need sodium to live. We need this mineral to live. But with too much of it, it can actually kill us. Salt was so valuable at one time that it was used as currency and it was used as wages. The word actually salary literally means salt money. Salt was given as a stipend or an allowance to Roman soldiers so that they could go and buy it. There was a stipend given to them and that was their salary. That was their salt money. So what Jesus is teaching here is that salt, it's effective, it's being used for its intended purpose when it is salty, when it is in edible form, but if it loses its saltiness, it becomes worthless. And so I began to ask the question, is he like after just teaching us a chemistry lesson here, or is he driving a point home through this word picture? Salt actually is incredibly stable. It doesn't degrade over time. So I began to ask the question, how does salt actually then lose its saltiness? What does he mean by lose its taste? And as I'm reading a lot of the commentators and wrestling myself, it seems that salt can become less useful, it can less salty, it can lose its taste when it's diluted to the point that it's no longer recognizable as salt. This also has implications on his people. Salt mixed with sand, it's no longer useful as a food preservative. It's no longer useful as a flavor enhancer. It becomes inedible at that point. Neither is salt mixed with too much water. It just becomes diluted. It doesn't do its intended work and it doesn't fulfill its purpose. And so at that point, it becomes worthless. Like he says here, and he says, it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Kind of the way you shake your rug out the back door. That's the point at which salt that has been too diluted uh, is to be used. And as you throw it out, it'll actually kill vegetation. And he's saying it's good for making pathways ways and roads, essentially, at that point. Here's, here's the point, I think, that Jesus is really trying to drive home. Jesus means for his disciples, you and I, to have a distinct, preserving, flavor-giving effect wherever we are. That's the big idea. That's what he's trying to drive home to his disciples, that he means for us to have a distinct, preserving, flavor-giving effect wherever we are. Um, when you put salt on your tongue, you know it's there, don't you? Like you put just a little bit of salt, like you know it's there. It's distinct. When you salt food, you notice the difference between unsalted food and salted food. When your food is edible or cured and not rotten, you know that distinction too, right? We, these, these things are pretty obvious to us. That's how God means for his people to live in the world. He means for us to be distinct. His will for you and I is distinction. 
a set-apartness. Have you ever shown up at a Halloween party not dressed up? I do this almost every year because I'm not that fun and I feel awkward almost and uncomfortable a bit. Almost every, I feel like I have to give explanations for why I'm not dressed up. That's a picture of distinction. It's a picture in some ways, not the church not being any fun. It's a poor analogy on that level. But it's the church is meant to, in, in a group of people, to be distinct, to stand on her own. And there are significant warnings here too for us to keep embedded within this text, for us to keep hold of our saltiness or our flavor. One of the warnings here for us, one of a, a danger that we, uh, that we can easily give into is blending in through an attempt at relevance in the world. We often lose our distinct flavor, our preserving effect on culture around us when we attempt to blend for the sake of relevance. The seeker-sensitive movement uh, in the 90s and in the 2000s has brought a ton of good to the church and the way that she had, the way that the seeker-sensitive movement has thought um, diligently and strategically about outsiders. How do we communicate effectively the, effect, the, the, the effective message of Jesus Christ, the gospel? And in some ways, she's done a lot of damage too by causing the church to blur the lines between herself and culture. I want to ask this question. In our attempt to be relevant or seen as legitimate or to fit in at work or at school or in relationships, have we actually betrayed the distinctiveness of Jesus Christ? In our attempts to blend, are we actually betraying Jesus himself? In some ways, the church is supposed to be weird. We're supposed to have a kind of distinctness that isn't normal to a watching world, that causes the world to ask a bit of questions. Somebody needs to print, keep the church weird bumper stickers. Like Portland and Austin can't only have those bumper stickers, right? It should be weird to those around you how you prioritize and live by an ancient text and not cultural fads. That should be weird. It should be weird that we get up early like this on a Sunday morning to come and to sing together to a God who we cannot see and to serve people who we do not know and may not even necessarily like. That should seem weird to the world around us. It should be weird that we refuse to cheat and to get ahead or that we don't give up on our spouses when we don't feel happy or honored by them. It should seem weird that we serve and love people who hate us. It should seem weird that we allocate a significant amount of our income to local churches for the sake of gospel advancement. It should be weird when we stop at one beer or one drink or pass a pipe when it gets passed around. That should seem abnormal to the people around us. It should be weird and seem weird that God wants to use you and I and us to display his glory. That should seem weird. Our distinctions, our lack of blend, they bring color and flavor and preservation and light to the world around us. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. 
A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus wants his church to be seen and not a secret. Jesus wants his church, his people, to be seen, to be witnessed, and not kept a secret. Uh, The people that Jesus Christ draws together locally, like in a congregation like this or other congregations around our community or globally, is designed, the church is designed to have an illuminating effect on the world. Um, Have you ever been out in the wilderness on a really dark night where there is a lot of cloud cover? Way, way out, no light pollution. Uh, the, the effect, like dark darkness is a thing. It's pretty wild when you cannot see anything in front of you. Just a couple of feet, everything is dark. You can't, there's no light by stars, there's no light by moon. But just a little bit of light in dark darkness helps us to find our way, helps us to see our way. When grouped multiple lights can dispel darkness exponentially. That's what he's saying. A city set up on a hill, shrouded by darkness, cannot be ignored. What does Jesus say here? He says, you are the light of the world. The surprise in this statement is that you and I are the, are the light of the world. The second surprise is that he's speaking of the entire world. We are God's design to help the world recognize him. That's immediate. That's, these are the first words in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus goes around conduct. He's saying, you guys have a very holy, serious, good, adventurous, exciting, dangerous calling. Let's go. I'm with you always to the very end of the age. The Apostle John, uh, in, in, he's, he's writing about Jesus in 1 John 1, 5. He says, um, he says this, he says, this is the message that we've heard from him, Jesus, and proclaimed to you. He says that God is light. God himself is light. And in God, in who he is, there is no darkness at all. He is pure light. He radiates light. John will go on in his gospel um, describing the life of Jesus at the very beginning to say this. Notice how many times the word light is used in this passage. I think it'll be underlined on the screen. In the beginning, he says, this is the very first opening statement of his gospel. In the beginning was the word. The word here is, uh, he's speaking of Jesus Christ, the creating agent in humanity. It's the Greek word logos. In the beginning was the word and the word Jesus was with God And the word, Jesus, was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, Jesus, was not anything made that was made. John says, in him was life. In Jesus was life. And the life, the God life in him actually was something for mankind. It was the light of men. He'll go on now to transition to this light metaphor and he'll say, the light shines out in the darkness. Remember, God is light. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness flees at it. The darkness doesn't overtake it, but the darkness flees. There was a man sent from God, John the apostle is saying here, whose name was John. He's not speaking of himself. I know this can be a little bit confusing. He's speaking of John the Baptist. John the Baptist came as a witness to bear witness about the light 
that all might believe through him, the light, Jesus. John was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Now, he names Jesus the true light. He does something. He gives light to everyone. He imparts his light to his people. He was coming into the world. Both of these passages are written by the apostle John. John was one of the disciples in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, who came to Jesus as he taught the Sermon on the Mount. John, who's saying this later in life, was there when Jesus gave his famous salt and light talk, sermon. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming. His life is the light of mankind. What this means is that Jesus is the one by whom we live and by whom we see. He is the one who illuminates. He makes darkened hearts able to see God. He is the one by whom we find our way. God has given his people. This is a place for you to just take hold and to receive here. God has given his people his light. I know, I don't feel like there's any light in me. I don't feel, I feel like I'm constantly overcome by my sin. I, I feel like I'm constantly groping in the darkness. Okay, that's your felt reality in a moment. But what Jesus is saying and what the prophet John the Baptist is saying and what the apostle John is saying is that Jesus has given his people his light. Jesus himself says in John chapter eight, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me, whoever sticks close to me, whoever abides with me will not walk, walk in darkness, but will have something, what? The light of life. Are your felt experiences more powerful than God's promises to you? Make a decision. Are your felt experiences more powerful? Do they overwrite God's promises to you? Paul would go on to say, for at one time, this is another apostle writing to churches. He's writing to a church in Ephesus. He says, for at one time you, church, were darkness, but now you are literally light in the Lord. And then he admonishes them, walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. This is our work. Try to discern what's pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful, the destructive works of darkness, but instead with the light of darkness, Christ in you, expose them. That's what light does. It is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. He's speaking of the pagans, the Romans, the Gentiles, the Pharisees even. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Wake up to his reality. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. Why? Because the days are evil. Or you could say the days are dark. The community of God's people, is uh, the, the community that God has called together is called the church. His mission to seek and save the lost in the world has actually created a church. The mission of God has a church the mission of God has a called out people. The church is meant to be seen as light, not kept secret as those invisible under the cover of dark. 
when multitudes of light bearers congregate in homes, in buildings, in neighborhoods, in counties, at event centers in Athol, at old historic church buildings in downtown Coeur d'Alene, on street corners, wherever you find them, there is a non-ignorable display of good works to be seen, love and benefit to all people all around. What Jesus means for his people is that we would be visible like a lit up city postured on a hill. And and something else, he means for us not to discriminate in our loving service. He means for us not to discriminate in our loving service, but rather to love and to serve those around us. He teaches us to love our enemies. He also teaches us to serve our church and our people and our families. Both. Not one or the other, but both. What this means practically in our cultural moment is that Jesus calls his church to love people of differing faiths and political affiliations. There are no deplorables in the eyes of the church. There are also no leftist Marxist types to be condemned by the church. The church is called by Jesus Christ to do good to all and not to withhold when we have opportunity to do good. So I've lined up uh, some opposites here in multiple ways. Who is the church to serve? She's to serve, to go after Marxists. She's to love and to serve and to go after soccer moms. She is to love and to serve and to go after socialists. She is to love and to serve and to go after grandmas and grandpas. She is to love and to serve and to go after capitalists and philanthropists and communists and community leaders and fascists and teachers and police officers and killers and the homeless and the Rotary Club Volunteer of the Year. All people everywhere have opportunity, are invited to get in on the good news of Jesus Christ. All people everywhere have until their last day to repent and to rejoice that God saves sinners. And such were every single one of us. Jesus of Nazareth did not discriminate and neither does his church. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, the Apostle Paul said in Romans. The Apostle Paul would also write in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and verses 4, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, but God made us alive together with Christ. We were dead 
and sins and trespasses. We could not do a thing. We could not revive ourselves. There was nothing we could do for ourselves. We could not climb out. The hole was too deep. Jesus Christ himself intervened, our rescuer, not from the inside, but from the outside and through his life, his death, his resurrection, his substitution in our place for our sins. He is the one who has by his spirit regenerated us to see and to revel at the glory of Jesus Christ who pursues sinners and saves them. In ancient Jewish homes, Lampstands, lights were put up on a lampstand so that they would give light to all in the home in the same way that we don't mount our lights in the floor, we mount our lights on the ceiling so these lights can shed light. Light is given prominence because of how much good illumination it brings to those who need it. Now in the same way, church, this is a charge to us and it's hard to hear. We have to wrestle with some things. How do we engage civically? How do we engage and and, and we seek to do good? People will hate us as we seek to do good. How do we still engage but refuse to demonize our opponents? Standing firm with a charitable, charitable disposition even when people want to kill us. If it comes to that, will we refuse to curse And will we choose the way of Jesus to bless instead? We are not meant to be secret disciples and we are not meant to be a secret community. So may we consider the ways and the opportunities that we have to gather together, the ways and the opportunities that we have to pool our resources, to create celebrations for the undeserving even, to serve the hurting and to let our good works function as light in the world, which shows the grace of God to the totally undeserving. At one time, that was you and I. Jesus' gathered and scattered people are to be non-ignorable. We're to have a distinct, preserving, flavor-giving, and illuminating influence on the world around us. Amen. Father, this takes courage. We need courage. We need clear thinking. We need a greater sense of your Holy Spirit at work within us. Would you help us to see and to experience how you work with us, how you work in us? Would you cause us to want you? Would you tune our ears to your voice so that we listen to you in the moment? I am rarely in this posture where when I am wronged or inconvenienced, I am rarely in the posture, knee-jerk, in the moment of blessing. But rather, my disposition seems one of obstinance and cursing and anger. Forgive me and us and teach us and lead us and form us as your kingdom people who are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. By your power, do it. In Jesus' name, amen.